Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Jody Hilton, and I'm going to be guest hosting an interview today with Larissa Doroshenko. Larissa, who is originally from Belarus, is a political communication scholar and researcher at Northeastern University's Department of Communication and Communication Media and Marginalization Lab, where she studies and specializes in populism, nationalism, and disinformation campaigns. Also listening in, we have Brent Phillips, producer of the podcast series. Welcome, Larissa. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with your podcast. I study disinformation, nationalism, and populism, but also as part of my collaboration with the Communication Media Marginalization Lab, we also like essentially study how certain groups become marginalized, how their voice is being suppressed in traditional and also social media and how we can change it for the better. So in respect to my research, I see it as an opportunity to find tools to fight against this so-called dark side of the internet. How do we as a regular citizens, how do we make internet a better place? How do we make social media more inclusive, diverse, and respectful for everyone to discuss social and political issues? And how do we also amplify voices of those people and those communities who traditionally do not have a power to be heard in traditional settings before? Misinformation, disinformation, fake news, these are all terms that get thrown around a lot, sometimes interchangeably. Can you break down for us a little bit on um, these terms and let us know wherein lies the focus of your research? That's actually very important because a lot of people use these terms interchangeably which is okay as long as you understand that you're not using them correctly. However, if you try to be precise, information is just any not correct information that does not take into account whether a person or entity who's sharing this information has any malicious intents behind it. So in other words, if I'm just, you know, spreading rumors or some some unverified information online, without any intent to mislead you, but rather, or I just heard something juicy and interesting I want to tell you about, that would be more of a misinformation, right? I don't have any, I don't pursue any specific goal with that. I'm just sharing this information for the sake of sharing it and maybe generating discussion about it. Fake news is obviously, you know, as the title, as the name says, it's just untrue information. So something that can we, we can verify and say this is not true because we've checked that, right? Because we applied like, you know, the ground truth information and compared it to the one shared and determined that it wasn't true. So it was fake sort of, right? Fake news, not true. Disinformation, on the other hand, first has very clear intent of an actor. So I'm spreading this information with a very specific concrete goal not just to generate discussion, but rather something that might lead to a person or an entity or a government to make certain decisions as outcome of this disinformation. And secondly, the disinformation also is more broad than just fake news. 
So disinformation campaigns can include obviously distorting facts or like denying responsibility for events, but it also can employ such techniques as like distracting. So for example, if I'm talking about, you know, I think the, one of the most obvious examples would be like, what about ism? right? You're tall, I'm telling you about, let's say how, you know, vaccines help to prevent spread of COVID and prevent maybe a more serious disease. And you would be saying, oh, what about all of, you know, some evidence that vaccines uh, create certain damage, right? Or like, oh, what about something else? Or like, you know, maybe in the context of the topic that I study the most these days is about war in Ukraine. And you can say, okay, like the United States is helping Ukraine, but, and you know, we uh, sympathize with the suffering of Ukrainians these days, but what about Syria? What about Palestine? And so all of this is just distracting really from the conversation and also not necessarily those important topics, but the way that they're invoked are undermining essentially the focus of that specific conversation of that specific news story. Other strategies of disinformation also involve like sort of like dismaying campaigns. So exaggerating the threat. And we've seen a lot of it these days with the threats of nuclear escalation or world famine as well. Uh, so all of these tactics are also part of this information, even though we might not necessarily say, oh, it, it is not true that, you know, famine is not a threat or Russia is not going to employ nuclear weapons, right? We can't verify it, but it's still part of this broader disinformation campaign. So again, just to reiterate, uh, misinformation, it's like any not true information, rumors, gossips spread without malicious intent. Fake news is just false information that can be verified and said that it wasn't true. And disinformation is a much larger campaign of spreading deceitful information with a specific intent by person or an entity. So how do you actually go about studying disinformation? Like what's your methodology and what are the goals of your research? So I think the major goal is to first understand what type of strategies we see so we can better detect these patterns in the future. And then another goal, obviously, would be to think of knowing what strategies are being employed by foreign entities or domestic entities as well. Domestic actors, knowing potentially what to look for, we can also actively preempt or debunk certain claims even before they start spreading. Just being aware of what potential strategies might be employed, we can start employing counter-narratives and counter-arguments in the you know, public sphere, in the media sphere, in discussion about the events. And the way to study it is actually gets tricky sometimes because as i said like fake news or like false information can be easily fact-checked and in this case we can you know put a label that it is not true it is false when it comes to more subtle strategies of disinformation such as spread of this like narrative to distract an opponent or dismay like exaggerate certain threats or if you would like to spread certain like opinions, this information is just much harder to verify. And in this case, it helps to know the source of this, of these opinions. One of the projects that really started my journey on this disinformation research benefited from having a full list of the Twitter handles that were published and openly said that they were affiliated with the Internet Research Agency. 
a so-called Russian trolls farm. And so in this case, it might be just a matter of seeing how certain narratives rise and then come down and look at how this online conversations sync or don't sync with the real life events. Or we can also look at specific narratives spread by, let's say, like known propaganda agencies. So for example, if you look at Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they would definitely be presenting the point of view of Russian government. So in this case, it might we might just either look at that or we might look at certain narratives in the online public sphere and see how they correspond, how they interact with the on-ground events in real life. But that definitely becomes much harder than working with the ground truth data. That's so interesting. You mentioned Twitter as one of the places where you look for such kind of data and disinformation campaigns. Are there other places where you look in social media and what kind of tools do you use to sort of digest the data that you find? So another channel, like very important channel of disinformation campaigns and propaganda, especially in the area in the Eastern European region, is uh, Telegram. So that's a platform invented by two Russian developers, and it is mostly was used first by like just exchanging information, but then it was adopted a lot by media, like news media, and essentially. Now we see a lot of different channels that people can subscribe to and just passively receive information about topics they're interested in. So it's sort of like a subscription to an online news spread. There's a very loose moderation of this platform, unlike in other like Twitter or Facebook. And uh, that part of, you know, social media ecosphere is popular and yet very few scholars look at it just because of unfamiliarity or because you can't get access to the text that's been spread on these channels, but you really don't know who are the subscribers of this channel, who are these accounts behind it, like who listen to that. So there are some limitations to what you can get from Telegram in terms of the data for the analysis. And the tools that are used for analysis, they really depend on the type of question. So if you want to understand what type of information has been spread, we would use various type of either human-coded or machine learning content analysis. I mean, it depends on how much text we have and how much resources we have. Do we have to train the algorithm? Do we do unsupervised machine learning and like just look at the, give the machine the freedom to determine which topics are covered in this specific data set of various texts. So that's one tool, like content analysis. Another part is what I try to do in my research as well is to look at the network analysis, how the users are connected to each other and how that enables them to communicate, but also coordinate perhaps certain activities. And other analysis that I employed in my research as well is the time series. So basically looking at connection between certain strategies, like for example, like mentioning someone or tagging using specific hashtags and how that might help specific accounts to increase their number of, fo- number of followers over time. We're really interested in the intersection of humanitarianism and artificial intelligence. And you mentioned that you oftentimes employ machine learning as part of your content analysis. So that's something I'd like to hear a little bit more about. If you can tell us, you know, if there's an AI role in what you do. 
So I think the, the main benefit of using artificial intelligence, right, and machine learning is now we can analyze like much larger threats of data just because before it was challenging to, you know, you have to train coders, you have to make sure you're coding for the same thing. You're also more prone, actually, as we found out through going over certain like tweets, for example, tagged by machine learning. We realize that humans don't always pick up certain signals as well. So there are human beings are actually more prone to error than machine when you like ask it to look for specific words or specific phrases. So that just really facilitates the work of researchers because we can analyze more data these days and do it faster and more efficiently. But obviously there's a downside of it. And one of it is understanding what happens behind it. So we often talk about the algorithms as being like a big black box. And it's important to try to control, in a sense, this big box as, as big black box as much as possible. So there are tools uh, readily available to researchers that will do certain analysis for you automatically. So, for example, there are platforms that you have to like pay for and subscribe for, and they would allow you to first access Twitter data and then also analyze, for example, whether these tweets are have positive or negative sentiments and what type of narratives, what type of topics they have. And one downfall of it is that we really, like with these platforms, there's really limited or none, with no opportunities to fine-tune this to your specific topic, to your specific research. So that's why I'm a bigger fan of doing that work manually, just getting your data and doing the analysis using certain ways packages and algorithms by yourself so you can have a better idea of how precise your learning is. So if you train, for example, algorithm with this specific number of, like, let's say, text, let's say it's tweet, right? So you train specific tweets, it's said to the machine learning algorithm that this is going to be positive or something is going to be negative. I have a much better control of telling what my precision, what is my recall, and fine-tune this. So that's like one part of it, so being able to fine-tune this algorithm for your own needs and train them yourself. And another part is obviously kind of like understanding the data, because if we just feed like any type of data set to the machine, it's going to analyze it. But the question is like, is this data set relevant? Are those tweets really, for example, do they really contain the content you're interested in? Or do you, do you, have you used correct keywords that would give you the most relevant corpus of data? And all of these questions must be like, it's all, machine would not tell you this. It's you as a researcher would, would have to make these judgments, would have to justify them, the choices that you've made, and being able to communicate them to other people so they can help you to either improve your findings or if you already published this paper, they can either replicate or build on that method to improve it or to use it for their own questions. And so I definitely know there is benefit to make our work faster and more efficient. And the downside of it is being able to understand what's happening with the algorithm and also understand what type of data we're feeding into, the, into these algorithms. Just because we have more data doesn't mean it's good data. So we have to make our own judgment in that case. Larissa, that's so interesting about the algorithm and, and the kind of things that it picks up. 
Or do you have any anecdotes to sort of illustrate when the algorithm kind of made a mistake or kind of derailed you or, or sent you in a direction that didn't work with your research? I've learned and we've learned as, as part of research group that it is almost impossible to really teach machine learning, like the algorithm, to recognize humor. So we pretty much gave up on the idea because, first of all, it was even hard sometimes, especially when it comes to Twitter, it was even hard for us as scholars to achieve consensus because, for example, we had certain researchers who were not native speakers, me including, and they might not pick up on all of the cultural jokes embedded in the tweets. And then similarly, it was very hard to train the algorithm to recognize even kind of more obvious humor or like jokes just because they so depend on this kind of implicit context of it they're not necessarily the words embedded so it's, it's just extremely hard to or i would say almost impossible to train algorithm to understand humor on the other hand it's pretty good at picking up positives and negatives just because of the words that we use to speak about something in a positive or a negative way and when it comes to like specific research applications, one challenge or like another one interesting aspect of it, looking at disinformation campaigns about war in Ukraine in 2014, or like, you know, kind of Russian intervention and annexation of Crimea and Donbass, is that we, we had like, you know, tweets that were coming from this Russian trolls factory. And then we also had tweets about war in Ukraine that were not coming from these accounts, or at least Twitter did not flag them as such. And in this case, we were able to compare the tweets and the type of features used by Russian trolls versus real people when they're talking about war in Ukraine. So it gave us an opportunity to kind of compare this to these two like data sets, one of them produced by Russian trolls, another one produced about by regular people talking about the same topic. And we could see, for example, that Russian trolls are more likely to, let's say, share links or more likely to add mention other trolls than regular people. So in this case, we were, again, using this kind of more human judgment, we were able to tell apart certain features in this case. What are some of the practical applications of your research? Like how, how is some of the data being, being used nowadays? Oh, great question. I'm not sure exactly how this older data set has been used because I think, again, the one part of the working with the disinformation campaigns is that you studied certain instances of it before and it might necessarily be useful to use the same data over and over again. But I do believe that studying those strategies help us to, to recognize those strategies being employed these days and think actively of what type of data we can collect to either like, you know, support our hypothesis now predictions or find something else we probably did not expect initially going into this research project and this data analysis. So for example, we've seen certain strategies of like dismissing, right, how Russia said that they were not, you know, it was not there were like some green man in Crimea, but Russia had nothing to do with that. Or they're also involved, dismissed their involvement in insurgencies and uprisings in the region, in Donetsk and Luhansk. And, at the same, and we also 
see similarly these days how we dismissal of people de- being deported to Russia, right? They're just going for like various cultural activities, right? We don't deport them. There's also like dismissal of the civilian suffering and how, you know, we're not targeting civilian buildings. They're just, they're just bombing those Ukrainian Nazis who are hiding in these places. So we see certain patterns that are similar and we can actively think what type of data we can collect in order to either support our predictions, right? Or maybe we discover something else in the process of it. There's so many wider implications for the research that you're doing. I was just recently doing some research about the situation in in southeastern Tajikistan, where the autonomous region is under a huge amount of pressure from the central government, which is also aligned with Russia. And that Tajikistan government is is always accusing the local people, the civilians and and activists of being terrorists. And it it just sounds so similar to the kind of messaging that's coming from Russia against Ukrainian so-called Nazis. I just wonder if you are seeing the same kind of patterns where the things that are happening in relation to the Ukraine conflict are also happening, you know, reverberating around the greater region. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm... A big part of it is, again, kind of looking at disinformation campaigns, but not but with slightly different ones. So one of the examples of disinformation campaigns was distracting your opponent. In this case, we can talk about other countries in the region. For example, let's look at the European Union or the United States or the UK and how we can distract them from like actively supporting Ukrainians in this confrontation with Russia. So we've seen a lot, for example, early on, especially when the war started, trying to refocus these countries on their domestic issues. So, for example, in the U.S., I know there was a lot of conversation how, you know, we shouldn't worry about Ukraine as much because we have so many other pressing issues here. We have, you know, social justice, we have immigration issues here. So all of these politicians just trying to distract us from this press and domestic agenda. Similarly, also, there was conversation, at least within the European Union, about immigration policies and Western European countries blaming Central European countries, such as Poland, Czech Republic, kind of that they're hypocrites because they were refusing to accept flocks of immigrants either recently, just like in the end of last year or years before when there was huge immigration crisis in Europe with, remember, like, right, escaping from people who were escaping from Africa. And so they're blaming them for being racist and accepting Ukrainians because they're white and not accepting other refugees because they're not white. And so, again, this type of narrative, I mean, again, really important issues, really important to discuss. But at the same time, at that time, they were mostly serving the purpose of just, first of all, just distracting from the main narrative, but also antagonizing potentially some of those nations against Ukrainian refugees at that time, or even now. So I would expect actually, like now as the war drags on, to be more careful and more intentive of how Ukrainian refugees are portrayed in the media, the type of conversations we see about them on social media. Because one of the disinformation campaigns in this case would be to antagonize European, or like all those European and not European even countries like the US against like those refugees who they're, I don't know, taking over and taking jobs of locals, right? So we've seen that playing over and over again in many political contexts before. So it's not something new, it's just new actors in it. And now also I've seen just, you know, like a week ago, 
looking at the headlines of some of the articles in like Democracy Now, or the War on Rocks, or Newsweek, talking about, well, even in the year, um, yeah, I think those are the three main outlets, or just overall conversation about how Ukraine has been fighting corruption for quite a while, and we shouldn't trust it so much with a lot of weapons because they might end up on the black market or even be sold again to Russia. So none of this has so far has been found any support. And yeah, there were a lot of kind of like rumors or opinions circulating about it, trying to undermine the Ukrainian government and also try to dis-Western countries from providing more arms to Ukraine. And again, if we look at this from the perspective of disinformation, who is benefiting from it? To me, it's obvious. And I think we have to be just very alert and careful to this type of narratives, which are targeting not necessarily Ukrainians or Russians, but rather other countries in the region, as you said. You know, Larissa, you're kind of uniquely positioned to evaluate Russian disinformation because you're originally from Belarus, which of course has borders with both countries. And you also mentioned this kind of implicit context in an earlier question answer. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about how you understand things based on your own sort of childhood and growing up experience and and a little bit more about sort of what's happening in, in what's the conversation in Belarus these days. One interesting observation that I've made recently and again it's something that it's like a hinge it's like I don't know intuition which I don't have necessarily like very firm like data support yet is that obviously it was a huge tragedy for the Ukrainians but also for Belarusians to an extent is how the territory of the country was used for this full-blown attack on Kiev so I would argue that if not for Belarus we wouldn't see atrocities uh, committed and in the suburbs of Kiev and at the same time it was obvious that that was happening that Russia was preparing that platform for quite a while I would say at least for a year there were this sign between two dictators that wider public haven't even seen about this like union country between the two between Belarus and Russia we don't know the details of this cooperation and it was all kind of like the ground has been prepared, and I'm sure Ukrainian government was aware of it. The other thing is that I think regular people, ordinary people, were not were like denying it in a sense, right? They were they were like didn't want to believe it that that is possible and that Belarus would be used for this attack. And there were you know ordinary citizens protesting the war. There were ordinary citizens, like workers of the railway, the Belarusian railway, who tried to undermine the supply of arms and provisions to Russian troops through Belarusian territory. Some of them, well, not, well some of, most of them were caught. Some of them were injured during that arrest and they're facing right now trials. And according to the amended law, they might even face a death sentence. So to me, that was like absolutely of them to do that. But, and yet we can also say, well, it wasn't enough, right? So it didn't stop them. So it was all very complicated, but what I did notice is that all of that was happening, right? All these tragedies were, where it was like used for this massive deployment of troops back in the beginning of war. And about a month ago, there started these conversations of how there are rockets flying from the territory of Belarus and how Belarus is our enemy. And to me, like, it was just the timing of it was rather odd of like, why now? 
right? Why it wasn't talked as much about in the beginning of war. And you can say maybe it was psychological. People were just shocked and they didn't, kind of, you know, start this conversation in this way. But on the other hand, it could be part of the, again, this campaign to antagonize the two nations more, right? To create more divisions between Belarusians and Ukrainians. And in, because in this case, potentially Russia can force Belarusian dictator to join the war and actually send the troops. I don't know. So it's kind of something we'll have to see as the, as the time goes by. I hope it's not going to happen, but I'm afraid that Russia like employs this absolutely brutal and criminal techniques to force Ukrainian men on the occupied territories to fight for Russia against their fellow countrymen using, you know, this again kind of death threats or having like, you know, people behind them and like behind the front line. So in case they retreat, they can shoot them. They use the tactics during World War II. They're still using it these days. So it's all the situation is very tragic. And I'm just very careful observing all of these conversations about how Belarus is complacent in this war, which is true, of course, because the territory, yes, is used. But at the same time, I think a lot of ordinary Belarusians are really against the war. I do not, anyone who would support this war as openly would have any feelings about this kind of like reuniting empire. So I think Belarus has been also suppressed in a similar way. It's just unfortunately been suppressed to an extent that now it's complacent in this war crimes. Jody, this is Brent. You've worked a lot in humanitarian crisis zones and uh, refugee camps, and uh, you worked in Bulgaria, and uh, you've seen a lot of this disinformation and the impact of war on people. And what are your thoughts and experiences around disinformation and conflict? I really appreciate the question. I've actually worked in Ukraine as well. I was in Ukraine in 2016, covering the situation of people who were unable to get proper medical care, especially for life-threatening illnesses like tuberculosis and HIV. So I have some context for what the kinds of things that we're talking about here. And I would say that the problem that we have, like myself, I'm a, a journalist and, and photojournalist, is that it's very easy for us to get caught up in trends and persuaded by the kinds of conversations that are going on, public spheres. And I think that Larissa alluded to it earlier, you know, there's a responsibility that journalists have to try to to cover the situation honestly, truthfully, accurately, and and focus on the right issues. And um, that's that's something um, I worry about a lot, you know, whether or not I've also been attracted to sort of the wrong things. Ukrainians now make up one of the largest groups of refugees in the world. Larissa mentioned something about refugees and how perhaps there have been stories about how Ukrainian refugees are, are treated more positively than, than refugees from other countries. And I found myself sort of caught up in that particular theme as well. So I don't know, it's, it's complicated. Larissa, obviously your work has great implications for humanitarian actors, and I wonder if that's something that you've thought about, and in, if so, like in what way do you think that your, your research could be applied to humanitarian situations or like helping out people who are working in the humanitarian sector? Is this something that's on your mind? Yeah, definitely. I think... One part of it is this sensitivity toward 
the information, like, I mean, I don't want to like just be like a like harp on the word disinformation, but like sensitivity toward type of opinions, type of narratives we share or we amplify. And asking, it's so easy these days. And I think this is my, just based on my observations, the temperature of it is getting like, you know, higher and higher, not just outside. We experience heat waves everywhere and not just because of the rockets and bombs that keep flying. But people also get like, you know, essentially emotions are getting also more and more intense. And that is so justified because obviously people are devastated. All of that is just so tragic. But at the same time, I keep thinking about how we still can preserve human face and humanity and how we should be still careful into not escalating this conflict by our own means, right? So if I'm spreading some information that creates divisions, that saws those divisions, that antagonizes one nation against each other, who am I helping? What am I doing? I think that's just such an important question to share. I'm like thinking about my grandparents' experience. So as someone growing up, obviously, in Eastern Europe, and I think that's also part of the narrative and, like, shared sentiment among also, like, Ukrainians as well, how we all look at all of this atrocities and how we all just can't help but recall all of the horrors of Nazi occupation that both Belarus and Ukraine experienced in full, like, all the countries were occupied during World War II. Unlike Russia, for example, right, or they had at least just, just parts of it. And just this tragedy of, like, you know, how our people were, like, fat as the cannon fodder in this war and kind of recognizing all of it. And when I was growing up, I remember I had this, and I still have, unfortunately, this kind of association of German language with a, you know, kind of like SS soldier with the, like, you know, German shepherd and whatnot. And it's just, this, this association is just so strong in my mind, unfortunately. And... I'm afraid like these days we can also amplify this type of like, narratives as Russian being associated as the language of our enemy. And it's just so tragic to me. And like at the same time, I also admire when I was talking to my grandparents and their experience under occupation or like, during war, they were not that eager to talk about it. I must admit, especially my grandpa who had to join the, the Red Army when they were retreating from like Belarus further west, because he has already was of age at that time. And so they, first of all, they didn't like speaking about it. But secondly, I was always amazed how, when I was talking about how, you know, oh, the Germans are so bad. My grandparents always were emphasizing that they were good and bad people. And I know that there's been a lot of conversation how old Russians are bad. And, but at the same time, I also have friends who are Russian who are against this war and who are advocating against it, either within the country or here in the U.S. or in Western Europe. And so it's just, they were always just emphasizing that they were good people. And I just couldn't fathom how they could do it after experiencing the occupation and all of that came with that. And so I think it's just part of it is how do we preserve our humanity in the face of inhumanity? And it's so important. And I don't think I have an answer to that. But just want to emphasize, like, you know, when we're sharing certain information and sharing certain narratives, do we amplify the evil or do we amplify good? And I would much rather be on the side of amplifying good things 
And we can amplify good things about Ukrainians, that's fine. But at the same time, I just do not like to see like a lot of negativity and like amplification of this negativity online. It's very sad, but it's hard to blame either side. I mean, the emotions are strong. Absolutely. At the risk of sort of being accused of whataboutism, I kind of want to ask a sort of a, a question that's been bothering me and it's been on my mind. You know, who else is engaging in disinformation and, and is it is it coming from other sides aside from Russia? I mean, you did mention disinformation, domestic disinformation campaigns in the U.S., but, you know, in terms of the conflict in Ukraine, is it okay to talk about disinformation, you know, coming from perhaps the Ukrainian government or pro-Ukrainian actors? Is this something that we should be even thinking about, talking about? Yeah, a great question. And I was part of also panel on misinformation campaigns during this ongoing war just last week at the Social Media and Society Conference. And there we were talking about of such a concept as information defense. So in a sense, you know, you spread certain information, spread certain narratives to defend your domestic interests. The goal is not to, I guess, undermine another government, but rather to defend your own. So something that comes to my mind easily is the, first of all, we don't know about any casualties. We have some information from the official sources these days about how many Ukrainians were killed during the war. And yeah, this information is not like, it's just guesses and even Western scholars, Western analysts, they have very limited resources to assess this losses. And part of it is obviously you want to protect, you don't want your enemy to know this information because you, you know, you might be, might be high, might be low, we don't know. And another part, there were like some narrative, especially in the beginning of war about this ghost of Kiev, you know, this pilot who shot down a lot of like enemies, like Russians, jets, jet fighters. So, and again, we don't know about whether it was true or not, or there was a myth. So I think all of this type of like information campaigns to kind of lift up the spirit of Ukrainians, you can look at them as like misinformation because it's not true. But at the same time, the I think the major goal of it is to protect their own interests. Or when there were also like there are some fires here and there in Russia, or there are some bombings, and Ukrainian side doesn't necessarily take the responsibility for it. It's just as well, we don't know, you know, who's like if there's like a fire, some factory in like on the border in Moscow. They don't take responsibility for it. They're like dismissed or like deny this responsibility, but maybe they are responsible. We're going to find out later about it. So you can, you can look at this type of information campaigns as potential disinformation, but I think it's the question is like, what's the goal of it? Like, are you defending your own country or are you creating divisions among other countries or are you creating chaos? And I haven't seen this type of narrative actually coming from Ukraine necessarily. Larissa, are you interested or engaged in looking at disinformation campaigns in, you know, the wider context, like, for example, coming from China or domestically in the U.S. or yeah. North Korea, other actors? Yeah, that's also, I guess, you know, kind of like I was talking again more about like the context of this war, but absolutely there's so many disinformation campaigns starting from like COVID pandemic, right? You have so many narratives there, also from other foreign actors as well. So as I was talking about, let's say in the Western Europe, in the UK right now, we also have this domestic crisis of the government in Italy as well, you mentioned Bulgaria. 
part of me is like, oh, sure, it's all been kind of in progress. We can just blame Russia for everything. Now the part of me is like, oh, who's benefiting from chaos everywhere? So definitely it's very important to recognize that there are multiple actors and multiple operations involved in it, not just Russia. But another part of me is that it's hard to be expert in everything. And I think like, you know, be part of why I focus on that specific uh, like Ukrainian or like Russian disinformation campaigns is because I better understand that context. It's easier for me to maybe like see the socio-cultural issues around it. I do not have that expertise in China. I do not have a lot of expertise of it from in, in many Western European countries. And I think that's why it's so important to actually encourage local like or people, like scholars with local expertise instead of studying the United States, which has been very like I think the primary focus of so many information like communication research, to actually proudly study those part of the world those parts of the world where these researchers are coming from. Because they are so well positioned to better understand that socioeconomic and cultural issues in, in that region. So you also teach at Northeastern, is that correct? And can you tell us a little bit about the types of things that you're trying to teach your students in terms of how they should be looking at disinformation? Yes, absolutely. So I primarily teach various research methods at the university, especially to students who are specializing who are like major in communication studies. And obviously studying disinformation is like part of the story, but I think that my kind of biggest message to my students, future, past, current, is to not be afraid of data analysis. As we were talking a bit earlier, there's so much data out there, right? I think, you know, we can talk about how it might be harder to access it as much as widely as you would like as a scholar. Oh, undeniably, there's way more data these days than it was even 10, of course, 20 years ago. And part of it is now we have more opportunity to study this human communication, like communication of like politicians or like other governmental entities and look up much more granular way. And a lot of it would require, as we talked about, for efficiency purposes, so for better understanding where this data might come from, understanding of this research methods, understanding of the data availability, how you can approach to analyze the swaths of data. But I think the biggest message that I have for my students who might be scared by it initially is to not be afraid and explore these opportunities. So I, a lot in my research and also in research of my colleagues, there's been a lot of very prolific collaborations among scholars who have a lot of, like, let's say, background knowledge or a lot of understanding of, like, human, like, communication processes and people who either train in computer science or who have interest in computer science or better with the coding. So they together can ask very interesting questions that would mostly come from people studying communication. But with the tools and the talents of computer scientists, they might answer them in a much more creative and a complex way than we previously were able to do. And my, that's why I encourage students to like explore these routes, to get their hands dirty with the data, to get this kind of like taste of this data analysis so they can either cultivate it and improve it in the future, or at least they know about these possibilities and they can 
create such collaborations with the people who might have the tools but not have the knowledge or creative ways of using this data. So speaking of tools for data analysis, is there a kind of AI tool that you could imagine being developed in the future that would be helpful for the kind of work that you do? I was thinking about this question and there is some research to analyze visuals. And I think I would like to these tools to be improved more in the future. So there's a lot of potential to study how we perceive, let's say, politicians not just by looking at what they say, but also how they say it. So analyzing their facial features, their gestures, their body language as they speak. So I know there's been some research devoted especially to like debates, like political debates, and trying to understand how populist politicians might use their body language in a more effective way than other more like traditional politicians. And then another, so like, you know, looking at this visual, like videos and another tool, I think would be great to be able to train algorithm to understand memes better. We talked earlier how it's very hard to train algorithm to understand humor, but at least I think would be great to have the tool to better understand those visual representations and maybe even like train it to recognize this specific thing as a meme and be able to, you know, collect in an automated way memes, their pictures associated with it, but also words that are used as part of that picture. So I think that would be really cool. That's an amazing idea. It's so interesting to hear you put that all together. What would you say to students and others who just feel strongly about what's happening and, like you say, don't know what to do and are uncertain and yet feel this drive to do something and to help. Any advice on getting involved? I think it's just hard to say, like, I'm also trying to figure out what else can I do, right? So I'm not, I'm going to refrain from saying students what to do, but I will say do something because even looking at domestic issues, I mean, there's so many things going on, right? Of course, we're in Ukraine, but for many Americans, it seems more like a distant tragic event, not less tragic, but something that doesn't affect us directly. But there are also a lot of other important domestic issues that affect young people in this country. And I think the biggest kind of disappointment when I'm talking through it is that I hear, so what can I do? Or like, I cannot do anything. There are all this big money in the politics. I have very little agencies, just like, you know, young citizen. And I would say this is disinformation campaign. We enjoy so many freedoms in this country, you know, coming from last dictatorship in Europe. I know what I'm talking about. So use this agency for organizing protests, organizing your local groups to promote whatever political causes you're interested in. And I think a lot of it is just like you might not do like a huge thing right away and change politics in D.C. But what you can do is that you change attitudes, people awareness in your small circle. And, you know, it sounds old, but like it all starts with your backyard, really. And it's so true. So just do something, whatever fits you, to change what you think needs to be changed. And I promise that from small actions, big things will happen. I love that message. Thank you so much. Larissa, it has been such a pleasure speaking to you today. And thanks for taking time to speak with us about these difficult subjects. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.